Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry, here again. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Phil Stevens. Phil Stevens, strength coach. We're on Strength Guild, uh, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and I am in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, Getting ready to go on a float trip. Oh, like floating down the river. We're not locking in the float chamber. (laughs) No, like floating down a river. Uh, Right on. That's cool. Uh, This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, associate professor of the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet certification, and teaching for Rocky Mountain University as of again, as of yesterday. So classes started again. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, hanging out in Wisconsin, getting ready to do some more RPR this weekend. Cool. Yeah. I thought we might start with some achievements in training. I mean, one could be Phil. You know, we were just talking recently about meaningful cardio. Like, you're going to have fun being just physically active, you know? Just having that kind of robust get out there and get aggressive – uh, so you're going to get some quote unquote conditioning, you know, I think just by doing all kinds of cool stuff, just what, what do you say? You're floating up and down a river paddling and stuff or yep, floating up and down a river. And yeah, we'll get out and jump off cliffs and stuff like that. So, you know, there'll nice. be some activity too. So yeah, there's some cliff dives here. So, Oh um, wow. Yeah. That'd be you fun. have to man, you have to manually climb the cliff first before you get to jettison yourself off. <laughs> right. <of that>. <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. So. Earn it. <laughs> yeah. But um, but you you texted Mike and I uh, last week about something that looked pretty heroic. You want to talk about that at all? Yeah, no, training's been going good. Um, so we we kind of we've taken this few weeks. So last week when I texted you, and then yesterday, no, day before yesterday, Thursday, uh, we're just getting used to straight weight again. We just did sixteen weeks of training where we never touched straight weight on the squat. So meaning we never did a regular squat. Uh, in 16 weeks it was always some kind of variation oh, whether it be mm-hmm. safety squat bar pause squat box squat the uh, reverse bands blah 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 so um now over the next three weeks when we get back from this we'll actually ramp up and do a max squat but we were just kind of testing things out and i did 675 for a triple um the most i've nice. done it a low body weight i'm at so right because uh, i'm just under 250 oh so, wow um, wow yeah, so I'm down, and uh, it makes me excited for, hey, let's see what I can do. And then uh, then yesterday, uh, Thursday, I went in, because normally I train today, right after the show, but we're floating. So me and my training partner was like, let's go in Thursday night and get something done. And I hit a really easy 675 again. We had one hour so to work up to a squat and a deadlift. So in an hour, I did 675 on squat, and then immediately warmed up and hit an easy 635 on deadlift. So, nice. Um, yeah, things are feeling really good, especially at this body weight. So right, reproducible too. It wasn't a fluke, you know, because there you are yeah, doing it again. No. Yeah. Why yeah, so. do you think? Like, what is it? All the, the sixteen weeks of doing sort of, um, I don't want to say accessory work, but you know, non-straight squats, or what's going on? I don't know, except for that, I feel really good. Like I've made the decision, I'm just not going back up because. <laughs> yeah. You know, okay. I'm coming on. I'm coming on forty-five. And, uh, you know, eating up just now, unlike it used to, I, I just feel bad when I go up. Yeah, and I, I've just slowly gotten used to the body weight, I think, because I didn't drop it in overnight. 
So, um, yeah, I, I can't tell you exactly. It's probably a culmination of a bunch of stuff. Right. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, it, it doesn't hurt that I did the biggest squat in my life right before this. So I retained a lot of that. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's a good call. Um, after the break, everybody, we're going to talk about eating up and with carbohydrates, for example, why is it that bodybuilders and powerlifters, they, they don't seem to like high carb diets for the most part. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff. Um, Mike, how about you as far as achievements in training? Yeah, I would say overall, everything's been going pretty good. I mean, I decided to drop down in body weight. So I got down to lowest. I got down to 210 and just, you know, kind of came up a little bit there. So obviously that's, you know, pretty depleted and all that kind of stuff. But so right now I'm like 215-ish, probably dropped down to 213, which is probably the lightest I've been for, I don't know, long, <laughs> long time. Yeah, that's lame. Uh, and then when I went kiteboarding in Hood River in July, so obviously my main goal is kiteboarding. I mean, I love lifting and grip stuff and everything else, but my main goal is to have those things transfer to when I go on a trip, I can just, you know, go ride and do it for hours on end and not worry about stuff. And yeah, the board felt really good. I did some uh, neuro rehab stuff in July. Actually, it was in June. A uh, buddy of mine runs uh, Minnesota Functional Neurology. And so they do some very in-depth uh, neurologic testing. So I don't see in 3D currently. I'm getting better. I see in monovision. So I have suppression of my right eye. So two images huh. come to the back of the brain. And my eyes are offset enough that the images, your brain can't fuse them together. So as a kid, I would see in double vision. So the brain solution then is like, well, if we just suppress or we drop one of the images, aha, no double vision. We solved the issue. You go from binocular vision to monocular. And when they did some testing, they found that when I looked to the right uh, on high-speed camera, my eyes would actually torque a little bit to the right, which means that my brain thinks I'm tilting my head. All right, so if you tilt your head, your eyes will stay in the middle. If I look real fast to the right or left, your eyes will kind of stay in the middle. So there's a bunch of reflexes in the brain that control all that. Uh, the good part was by the end of that week, so I did three sessions a day for five days in a row, uh, did a lot of vestibular work. So they have a little machine where they can basically strap you in and spin you in any direction they want, kind of an XYZ axis, a gyro stem. Yeah. So they did that, a bunch of other stuff. By the end of the week, I was able to look to the right, and the torquing of my eyeballs went away, which was pretty cool. And that corresponded to getting a lot more uh, hip extension on my right side, uh, a lot better feeling of where the ground is. And so I went kiteboarding, and everything just felt better. Like, I could do a little bit of a jump. I kind of felt like I knew where I was in the air. I felt like I knew where the board was. I kind of felt like I knew where everything was without having to look at it or become too hyper-aware. Um, yeah, so that's been good. And then the gym just started doing more squats again, which they actually feel pretty good. Uh, so it's been good doing more grip stuff. Uh, did 135 for three on a, what's called a Saxon pinch bar. So imagine a kind of a two by six that you can add weight to. So you have a pinch grip, so kind of open, open palm, uh, grip on that. Yeah. And then did some rowers. So like my, I got a, I got almost like around 20 minutes for 5K on the roar the other day, even though I haven't done 5Ks. Uh, the submax stuff has been good. My heart rate's a lot lower now, too. Been doing more nasal breathing, things like that. So, yeah, so overall, everything's been moving in the in the right direction. No, no massive PRs, but going in the right direction, so that's good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess for myself, I I am sore from head to toe right now. I, and, you know, the, that's both good and bad because some of it's very intentional. I did a lot of negatives, right, because uh, university started this week. So I purposely did, you know, like, I don't know, I think I did six sets of seven or eight reps, all negatives, not real heavy, just in my basement. That's where I've been training. Um, chest and arm work. I, so sore. Oh, my God. But what's funny is my <laughs> my legs are sore. And I didn't even train legs since last weekend. So I'm like, am I that deconditioned? Because I'm up and down stairs like 50 times a day, you know, uh, when I'm at work. My, my, my office is right above the lab. So I'm running up and down the stairs. We're doing some – we're continuing with some of the coffee and glucose tolerance work and all that. And uh, maybe that did it. 
I don't know. But for the, it, I'm in one of those quandaries where I don't like to lift it when I'm sore because I kind of think, like, what's the point? Like, I, I have the stimulus. Maybe I should just eat, you know, and grow. Um, but, Phil, I know that you train when you're sore, whether you're sore or not on a schedule, you know. Yeah. So I don't – I'll, I'll try to find something to do today. I don't want to not lift. <laughs> so I'm going to have to think of something. But that ties in with what we're going to talk about after the break as well, you guys, because um, when you're really sore, sore muscles really don't uh, take up and use carbohydrates very well. So the current state I'm in, I suppose ideally I could just use more lean on fat as a fuel a little bit more, you know, proteins and fats when I'm this sore. But that might be overstating it a little, though. I mean, you know, there's always some muscle tissue around your body that's not not wrecked and temporarily, you know, glucose intolerant. So anyway, it, interesting how uh, th these sorts of things change uh, your metabolism and your carb metabolism and stuff. So I'll tell you what, since you guys are both on the road, let's do an early uh, break. We're going to come back with some questions for these guys about their own look at carbohydrates, why they think uh, fitness people, especially bodybuilders, powerlifters, there's... There seems to be this sort of resistance against carbohydrates for the last at least 15 or 20 years. Uh, and if you don't think it goes back that far, I'll point, <laughs> I'll point to some articles. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes back a long way. And it makes you wonder, is it because we're regularly sore and we're a little bit carb intolerant? You know, why, why is it that we eschew carbs like we do? And then we're going to do a, sort of a deep dive. I found some studies here about the relationship between muscle mass and uh, carb intake and carb metabolism and it might surprise you so we'll be back in just a minute hello dear ladies and gentlemen yeah yeah you know who this is uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, in about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture, similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we're back, everybody. We've got Phil Stevens and Mike Nelson, both uh, 
on the road <laughs> making this happen. Uh, we are going to do a little bit of a unpacking of this thing, this phenomenon that seems to happen, whereby people with lots of muscle mass kind of issue carbohydrates. I mean, think about the way bodybuilders diet, you know, whether you pull carbs progressively out of your diet over 15 or 20 weeks, or some people do like hardcore ketogenic diets or cyclic ketogenic diets. We really drop those carbs as if we don't metabolize them well. And there may be some truth to that when we look at the science here. But Phil, let's start with you. Uh, what's your take on carbohydrates? I mean, have, is what I'm saying, does it sound right to you that it, we've been sort of anti-carb for a while? I mean, lately it seems especially intense. Yeah, no, we have been. I mean, most definitely from the time that we worked together and stuff at the the other publication we worked at. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's been, there's been tons of articles and stuff and a big push towards it at the same time. I think at least in the powerlifting realm, there's enough people that realize that they're not the devil. Um, and that's, I think it's cause we get that instant feedback in performance compared to bodybuilders and stuff where it might yeah. take weeks or months, takes weeks or months to see, um, what you're putting in your pie hole, what it does to you. Uh -huh. you know, we have that instant feedback next session. So um, there's been a down ramping, I think, for sure, in carbohydrates. Uh, but I think we've we've learned how to use them better. Uh, like like me, I do a lot of targeted. A lot of my carbohydrates come just prior to training, you know, because I know I'm going to perform better um, uh -huh. if I if I have them. So, but yeah, there are still people that. That hell, I have them happen in my gym all the time, and it, but it mm -hmm. usually never fails that if somebody goes keto, somebody goes super low carb, uh, we see a different performance, you know, and we know that's going to happen. And sometimes that's okay, especially like off season and stuff. Interesting, like it's an acceptable, it's an acceptable performance drop because we know it's going to come back in the long run, and we're going to get some body comp underway and stuff. So we'll go through times where, you know, pre comp and during comp, we're really loading them up. Um, because let's be honest, that bloat and the liquid and stuff around it, joints and tissues just helps. Yeah. It helps you move more weight. So, and then we'll move away from those for a while after. So. Right. Yeah. But yeah, in general, yeah, it's, we're in a low carb, you know, sugar especially has been, oh my God, it's bad. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, and to be honest, I mean, living on high fructose corn, corn syrup generally means you're living on junk yeah. food, you know, but other, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're right. But it, sometimes it gets overstated a, a little bit. Yes. Um, yeah. I honestly, based on the reviews that I've been doing lately, it looks like, I mean, let's face it, pros and cons, you know, low carb, probably yep. good for body comp. I mean, that's how I used to get ready for, for contests. I'd get my body fat down to probably about 4% by, I, I if I had a baseline of, let's say 400 grams of carbs a day, for a couple of weeks, I dropped to 350, and then for a couple of weeks, I yeah. dropped to 300, and then for a couple of weeks, I dropped to 250. You know, if now eventually you're going to hit a floor, um, and then during that period, I would increase uh, like pre-breakfast cardio and that kind of stuff to try to compensate for a potentially slowing metabolism and all that. But it's now what you're saying about powerlifters getting immediate feedback. You're talking about because performance, right? Like next day performance. Um, and I think that makes sense, right? Because bodybuilders, you're right, body comp is going to take forever to catch up. Uh, Mike, what about your take on this? Like, what's your perception over the last, I don't know, decade or two? <clears throat> I know that you're a uh, metabolic flexibility guy, so you're not going to demonize <laughs> any one nutrient. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it, like all trends, it kind of comes and comes and goes. I mean, I agree with Phil, like, for a while... Oh man, three, four years ago in more performance realms, I saw a lot more low carb stuff. Like the running joke was I'd have people you know, relatively highish level in CrossFit email me that they did a keto diet for four weeks. They felt great. And then they felt like they got hit by a bus and couldn't figure out what happened. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. then that you know, whole area kind of figured out that, oh yeah, carbohydrates are beneficial and power athletes, strength athletes have kind of known this for quite a while because like Phil said, it'll show up right away. I think in terms of more general public and just more general athletes, it like you said, Lonnie, if you're 
looking at uh, bodybuilding, right? And that's great for hypertrophy and obviously getting super lean. I mean, those guys and gals have been doing it for friggin' decades and it works. But at the end of the day, you're left with like, what do you cut, right? Because at yeah. some point, you have to go lower. And we've got enough data to show that if you dramatically cut your protein, you're going to increase your chance of muscle loss. We know that you can't drive your fat to absolute zero. One, it's almost impossible to find anything to eat. And then two, you need essential fats, right? You can look up, you know, stuff like rabbit starvation and mm -hmm. crazy stuff where people try to eat only like super, super lean protein and nothing else. This is normally just because there was nothing else around and can only eat so many rabbits in one day. Um, so you're left with just cutting out carbohydrates. But I think the kind of general population took that and kind of ran with it to the extreme of, oh, well, they must be bad then. Look at all mm -hmm. these athletes. They got super lean by cutting carbs and carbs must be bad. And Gary Tobbs told me insulin is horrible and it makes yeah. me fat. And mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of where it went off the rails. Yeah. Yes. And it's this fallacy that's gone on forever where people mistake athletics with health. Oh, totally. And they have nothing. They do not live in the same realm <laughs> you know, at all. So, not at a high level. Performance and health do not share a house. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Not right. at a high performance level. Yeah. For sure. No. Yeah. No, that's that's true. I, I think uh, what you guys are saying, I think, unfortunately, what a, a lot of athletes do is they conflate uh, body comp improvements with performance. Like, oh, low carb yes. is just straight good. It's like, listen, if you want to get lean over time, there are very few people who are going to tell you that's not going to be helpful. I mean, obviously, you're pulling calories out of your diet when you pull out the carbs, you know. And it is true that if you're in a high insulin state, if you live on – you know, soft pretzels and cheese whiz and Coke. Yeah, you're going to that all that insulin all the time and blood sugar. You're not going to be in a, a fat burning state really at any given point during your day, you know, just because of the way insulin interferes metabolically with, uh, you know, fat mobilization and, and oxidation and stuff. But, um, yeah, you can't think it's it, it, I think it's a mistake to say, oh, I feel great. Like you said, Mike, you, it might, you might feel great for a little while. Maybe you shed some bloat and you just feel kind of good and you maybe uh, mentally energized, but, you know, high-intensity repeat performance, you're just not going to burn fat fast enough to supply that fuel, you know, and, and that kind of stuff, I mean, in a very basic way. So, Phil, now you used to, well, I imagine you still do, uh, with age comes a little bit worse carb metabolism, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, let's yeah. face it, you're, you know, being middle-aged itself um, – but you, when it comes to eating up, I mean, your macros are pretty fixed. Your protein and fats are pretty fixed. And then if you want to gain, you eat yep. more carbs. And if you want to lose, you eat less carbs. Is that correct? Yep. Yep, that is correct. That's still what I do. Yeah. So, like right now, where I am now, I'm eating the same way I did 20 years ago, you know, to stay down. <laughs> you okay. know, it's just lots of, you know, I'll have some fruit. And, like last night, we had kebabs. I had steak. And peppers and onions and pineapple. Yeah. You know? Right. There you go. So Sort of sane. Yeah. Sane, healthy, whole yeah. food diet. Yeah. 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 Right. So. Uh, Mike, what about you? When you have people that want to gain, do you ever try to have them do it without carbs? Or are carbs always going to be in the picture of, you know, breaking new mass ground? Yeah, I mean, I've had a few clients where we've tried to do like a ketogenic approach and they were on a more mass gaining phase. And it was more or less just because of their preference of what they've done in the past. And I mean, there's like three or four studies now that have tried to look at this. And the problem you run into is that it's just almost impossible for them to eat more. I think like the three studies that were done like they really they set out to get him in a caloric surplus and it just didn't really happen. Yeah. Um, which you could argue that if you're really trying to get aggressive and cut, that's, you know, that's an advantage. Um, but yeah, I've, I've tried it. I mean, in theory, can you override that and be super conscious about it? I think you could, but I don't think that's probably the best way to go. Um, I'll generally just like Phil said, you know, my basic template I'm a bigger fan of, you know, high to moderate protein, not crazy high because you don't really need it if they're trying to gain lean mass, you know, lower-ish fat. I mean, not low fat by any stretch of the imagination, 
And then I just keep scaling up carbohydrates in different ways. Uh, one, because we're looking at performance. Um, even if they're a physique athlete, we're still looking at their performance in the gym. You know, are you lifting heavier weights? Are you doing more, you know, overload? Because it's super hard to figure out how much lean body mass or muscle you've gained over even a couple of months. But if your body weight's kind of slowly going up, you don't look incredibly fluffy and your performance in the gym is going up, hey, we're going in the right right direction. You know, we're not able to chuck in an MRI every couple of weeks to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, and even then, I mean, especially if it's more like a mixed mode or a CrossFit type athlete, I mean, I've had some of them, I had one guy get up to 540 grams of carbohydrates a day, and he wasn't really gaining a ton of weight either. Yeah, wow. <laughs> you know, and granted, he's a pretty, he was a pretty advanced athlete, and he was training, you know, some days twice a day and some days just once a day. Um, but you can get pretty high, and you look at the physiology also, too, that as you scale up carbohydrate intake in healthy individuals, you actually start just burning through more carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Right? Your body gets more tuned to increasing carbohydrate oxidation. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting from a mechanistic standpoint is that doesn't seem to happen with fat. So if we start feeding you more fat, it doesn't necessarily increase fatty acid oxidation. So my bias is that if I can scale up carbohydrates, I can still fuel that level of performance you know, and maybe theoretically we can get a little bit better body composition than just throwing some carbs at you and just a piss ton of fat and a caloric surplus also. Right, yeah. I remember years ago I stumbled on a paper and it said metabolically, it was a tracer paper as I recall, and they were suggesting that about 20 grams of fat, more than that, you, you tend to start disproportionately storing it. Like you don't just oxidize yeah. more. And, you know, I know a lot of people might say, oh, fat adapted, you know. And But I think a lot of people, they act like, oh, I'll just go low carb this week and be fat adapted. But no, you won't. <laughs> it's not not no. likely. You know, that's a that's an arduous process to force your body into fat adaptation over a couple of weeks, you know. Yeah. And even then you want to look at if you get really techy, like the RER, right? So respiratory exchange ratio, what fuel mix you're burning, you know, fats versus carbohydrates. And then I'm also a bigger fan too of doing even a a moderate capacity test or even like a VO2 max test and just seeing like how many grams of fat can they actually burn, right? Because you could have someone who at rest is very tuned to using fat, which is good, especially for metabolic health. But if their VO2 max is that of a field mouse, they're just not burning through as much sheer amount of fat, per se, compared to someone who's got a VO2 max in the 50s or 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, So you have to look at how much fuel you're running through the system, too, not just the mix of fuel you're using. Right. Where I want to kind of head with this is that bodybuilders and powerlifters are weird. Right. When it comes to athletes, <laughs> that's uh, an understatement. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, behaviorally, but even muscle mass. Right. Like Phil. Well, Mike, you all three of us, we have seen some people that were freaky specimens of muscle mass. Right. Oh, yeah. Now, oh, yeah. now <laughs> even if we if you take hormones, you know, extra extra hormones, you know, pharmacy out of the picture. Uh, having a gigantic muscle mass is going to change things like where your body puts the carbs, you would think, right? And that's what I want to look at with some of these papers because there seems to be this back and forth. Obviously, building healthy muscle. And you guys, listeners, this is where this started. Uh, The other week I said something about having more muscle mass, building muscle mass is good because 70% of the carbs you eat, according to, you know, standard textbooks, should end up in a healthy person as muscle glycogen, right? You eat the carbs, you dispose of it into muscle tissue. So having more of a gas tank should make sense if you build it up and that's healthy muscle. But where this literature seems to go back and forth, and I wanted to share this with everybody, is muscle mass by itself, uh, let's say in people who are just mildly recreationally active or or not, they're not lifting to build that muscle, they're not gonna have the quality of muscle Uh, Just more muscle, if that makes sense, right? We know that exercise, like lifting, enhances glucose transporters in muscle, glycogen deposition, right? All that kind of stuff is enhanced when you hypertrophy on purpose, right? By exercising and getting 
muscly and getting jacked. Um, but Phil, uh, now the people that you know, I'm, I mean, there are some big boys out there lifting. I mean, you yourself have been up pushing 300 pounds. Um, yeah. How do you feel when you're up there? I mean, what's your, your vibe as far as people? I mean, they're forcing the issue and they're just eating more carbs because they're eating up. But it's probably yeah. – it's not a pleasant experience at some point. Oh, no. It's horrible. Yeah. You know, it's – I feel like crap. And that's one reason I go back down. I, I can't live that way all the time. Like lifting is the only thing that feels good. Um, so – and then, you know, then during the off season, I feel great. Right. So, and that's one of the reasons like this last time at 44 – like, I was a sandwich away from a freaking heart attack. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and that, that was one of the reasons I'm like, I, I'm just, I think I'm done going up. Yeah. You know, in that way, yeah. in, in that, that extreme of a way. Um, I just can't handle it like I did at, you know, through my 20s and 30s. Right. And, you know, that jives with a lot of this stuff about insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance. They just tend to fade as people age. Now, uh, yeah. Lifters like you, they do blur the line because you're exercising so much. You maintain that muscle quality, yeah. I guess, right? But still, that suggests to me maybe that part of what played the role is, you know, a middle-aged body doesn't love giant, you know, eating a box of, no. you know, Lucky Charms like a 20-year-old body does, you know? Yeah, and I can tell you just from an end of one, my performance still went up much like it used to. But what went on me? was not the same as when I was in my mid thirties. You know, yeah. I, I, I put on a lot more fat than I did 10 years ago. Interesting. Uh, yeah. at, at 44 years old, you know, compared to 34 years old. Right. So, and I was huffing and puffing a lot more than usual and nothing's changed in my life. You know, I still do the same stuff I have for 20 years. Right. So yeah, if anything, I'm, I'm running more cause I'm chasing a five year old. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's no rest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. So, <laughs> yeah, that's funny, Mike. What about you? Uh, thoughts before we um, let you guys go? I know you're on the road. As far as like muscle quality versus quantity, I mean, is there a role in muscle yeah. quantity screwing with us as you know hypertrophied people? Yeah, like all things, I think it's both, right? You know, do macros matter? Do what you eat matter? Yeah, like both matter, um, and I think the the quality issue is something that's harder to tease out in studies because if you just, you know, chuck someone in a DEXA or MRI and you look at sort of lean body mass, depending upon what method you use to determine that, you may not necessarily know what the quality of that muscle mass is, right? So one of the things I think about all the time with this is the early studies that looked at uh, intramuscular triglyceride storage. Right. right. It's a little tiny fat droplets that are next to the muscle. So the early studies said, oh, my gosh, if you have a lot of these intramuscular fats there, this is bad. We, we look and we did local studies. We found insulin resistance. And later that was associated with you know, everything from, you know, lipotoxicity, ceramides, accumulation of acetylcarnitines, uh, that type of stuff. Um, but then they looked at athletes. And in this case, they looked at endurance athletes. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Their muscle looks the same. But when we did more performance metrics, especially insulin, it doesn't perform the same. And then they realized that, well, maybe it looks the same, but it's not operating the same. And the athletes, they were actually pulling more from the intramuscular triglycerides, and they were then refilling them. So they had more being kind of moved through them. But if you take a static snapshot picture, they kind of looked the same, but they right. performed differently. Right. And so that's kind of what I think about with, with quality. We have to be kind of a little bit hesitant about just looking at a snapshot without any performance to kind of go with it. And in, in practice, I mean, I think if you have more muscle, obviously that's going to be better. I would think your carbohydrate tolerance overall is generally going to be better. That's generally what I see. Yeah. But I can think of a couple athletes where I had a guy who was 240, relatively leanish, and his max carbohydrate tolerance was around like 200 grams a day. Ooh, it wasn't yeah. really that high. And he was doing, you know, Oof. a fair amount of exercise, but 
for whatever reason, we'd start pushing him over that, and he would just get fat. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I had a pretty lean uh, female figure competitor. She had a fair amount of muscle, but she was you know smaller, pretty short. She was at you know two weeks out of her competition, like still 250 grams of carbohydrates. She's about half the size of this other guy. You know, so I always think there's always weird kind of outliers there too that make it. Is it associated? Yeah. Is it probably as a clean association as what we wish it would be? Probably not. And that's yeah. where it gets messy. How many big, you know, linemen and power athletes have we seen that are very active and very strong, but they turn type two diabetic? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. can't just you can't <laughs> yeah. just cram it in all the time. No, that's good. You know. That's a good call. Even what I was thinking about that when you were talking, Phil. That as you're older, unless you maintain a certain amount of volume, I think of contractions, not to the point that you're sore oh, yeah. all the time, right? But uh, enough volume, you could be real big and real strong. And I can see that you could still be pretty insulin resistant, you know, just yes. because you're you're carrying you got a big power belly and you know and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And in fact, some of these papers talk of. A little bit about that. That they try to correct for intramuscular triglycerides or marbling of fat through the muscle or gut fat. They try to correct for those things. And it's funny, but the researchers themselves. I'm talking about papers 2018 through through now through through mid 2020. They're actually very mixed. The American Diabetes Association says weight lift, resistance train to help with diabetes, right? Because mm-hmm. you when you build more healthy muscle tissue and again because of the contractions and the hypertrophy and someone you're you know you've got more you know like i said like glucose transporters glute 4 glute 1 stuff like that um that's got to be good and that's why it's part of the recommendations here's my concern right as you grow when you eat up you're going to gain muscle and fat both right it might at some point like you said phil it's disproportionately fat at some point yeah. But you are adding – the whole point of bulking up is that you're adding some muscle with that fat gain. So I can see that when they look at – if they look at average people who don't lift, they could say, oh, yeah, more muscle mass is associated with insulin resistance, not healthy yeah. carbon metabolism, just because they've got a lot of muscle because they've also got a lot of fat. And so that's what these researchers yeah. are trying to con- adjust, I guess, especially in these cross-sectional studies – to your point, Mike, you take a snapshot, you don't know what direction they're going. Have, are they building muscle and getting better? Or are they just, they carry a lot of, especially like axial, like trunk muscle mass. Well, that might just be because you're you're also just a big boy <laughs> and you're kind of fat and you have a lot of muscle along with the fat, you know. Yeah. So they're trying to tease it apart and it's just, a, it's a stickier thing. I wish I could tell everybody Lots of muscle mass is just better for glucose disposal, you know, and you can eat more carbs. And that's true, like what I was suggesting before, if you build the muscle. I mean, what do we talk about on the show? Building muscle. But what about having muscle because you're a big sedentary obese dude, you know? Yeah. But. yeah. And even just something simple that we take for granted is like, uh, how do you measure insulin sensitivity? That's a complete mess because we could do a clamp study at yeah. a full, you know, system level, right? So you just throw in just a piston of insulin by an IV, another IV of a piston of glucose, but that's probably not a real physiologic situation because you're at such hyper supra physiologic levels that you'll probably see differences, but that may not correlate to where you're at. But then do you do something like, you know, David Kelly's earliest stuff? Do you run it just across like the thigh muscle? So you're trying to get more of the leg, just more muscle per se in there. But even then, you're only looking at uh, what happens under those conditions. So do you use some other marker? And then the last part, too, is that it gets more complicated by insulin in general in terms of stuffing uh, glucose and molecules into tissue, especially for carbohydrates. You need like pretty high levels in order to do that. So insulin has all sorts of other effects on glucagon at the liver and changing fuel partitioning. And yeah, again, it ends yeah. up being not quite as simple as what most people would picture it. And so those methods difference, you know, add up to big differences when you're comparing studies from one to the next too. Right. Yep. 
Well, that's why we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive. I'm going to I'll let you guys go. I know you're making it happen out there various places in America. Um Listeners, hang around, and I'm just going to give you highlights from about five studies trying to tease apart whether muscle mass is helpful or not uh, for car, high-carb diets. So I'll check in with you guys next uh, week. Thanks, fellas. Yeah, see ya. All right, everybody. Let's take a, just a whirlwind tour of a couple of studies here as to whether or not muscle mass – is helpful or harmful when it comes to uh, carbs, carb intake, and diabetes risk and all that. This first paper, again, just highlights here jamming through this. This is from Roberto Codella and colleagues. This is from 2018. Uh, it's an endocrine journal. And they uh, that give the title, May the Force Be With You, Why Resistance Training is Essential for Subjects with Type 2 Diabetes Mellitus, without complications so somebody's got type 2 diabetes there's a huge push from the powers that be to resistance train and build some muscle but it's important as we go through these studies the first couple are going to show muscle mass good if you will when it comes to carbs but sometimes it depends in who anyway let me get back to this codella paper it says anaerobic intense physical activity such as that of strength or power sport disciplines is not univocally recognized as safe and easy to realize. In other words, they're saying you need special attention and a strength coach that needs what, you know, understands what's going on. According to recent evidence, high-intensity training may be prescribed even in the face of cardiovascular disease, peripheral vascular disease, or osteoarthritis. Some studies have shown resistance training to be more efficient than aerobic exercise when it comes to glycemic control right or carb handling so interesting here just a, a couple of highlights they point out physical exercise is capable of activating uh acutely right glucose metabolism uh ad hoc training programs are effective on stimulating insulin action in the organism uh even in insulin resistant patients so even if you're carb intolerant resistance training can help activate a more sensitive muscle and help it uptake uh, the glucose like it should be. It says strength exercise and muscular conditioning have been always de debated with controversy, uh, mostly in reference to the acute stressors uh, and overload on the vascular system. So basically they're saying we got to be careful um, with a lot of strength training as opposed to, you know, just a mild like walking program or something like that for people with diabetes. But it says benefits of resistance training. Progressive resistance training procures improvements in body composition, mainly by an increase in lean body mass. That is metabolically active mass capable of removing glucose from the bloodstream. So this, again, looking good. Like more muscle mass, probably a good thing. Progressive resistance training has been shown to improve insulin resistance and glycemic control with a reduction in glycosylated hemoglobin. So if you're not familiar with that, hemoglobin a1c or glycated hemoglobin it's sort of a, a longer term marker of how well you've been handling carbs over the last month or so uh, and it says with a reduction in glycosylated hemoglobin uh, an increase in muscle mass and a reduction in fat mass all from resistance training right now it says aerobic activity um, hardly brings such an increase in lean tissue so again there could be some advantages in fact, years ago, I was at a conference, and Aaron Bonin, a famous Canadian researcher, was suggesting that resistance training might be better at activating GLUT1 uh, versus just GLUT4 transporters in muscle. Those are little, imagine, doorways that help let glucose from the blood enter the muscle tissue. So it says, summarizing the major benefits documented with resistance training in subjects with type 2 diabetes, that's the most common kind, uh, increase in strength and muscle power, increase in lean body mass, uh, increase in daily energy expenditure. That goes back to what Mike was saying about having enough, um, you could say aerobic base, but just in this case, just more muscle mass causing more calorie burning uh, every day. It says differently from aerobic activity, such as walking, resistance exercise can require uh, a competent, skilled supervisor and proper execution of the movements. So it's a little bit more involved. And again, why you need someone like maybe a Mike or a Phil or 
someone in town who knows what they're doing. But there's a little more here. It says, study outcomes and molecular mechanisms. In sedentary adults, muscle mass and strength decrease progressively with age. And again, when Phil talks about being 44 and trying to even hit a PR, you know, it becomes more of a challenge. It says, particularly after age 45, with a more pronounced reduction uh, following 60 years of age, skeletal muscle can be lost. And skeletal muscle is the first site for glucose and triglyceride disposal. Uh, it says uh, skeletal muscle decreases by 3 to 8% every decade after the age of 30. So that's what we're trying to prevent, right, is that loss of muscle tissue or the sarcopenia uh, in a worst-case scenario. So it says this increases the risk of glucose intolerance. And you're going to see that mentioned in a lot of these papers, less muscle mass, worse carbohydrate handling. Um, that at least has been the theory for a long time, and it's been demonstrated in a few different ways. It says epidemiological studies, so big population studies, confirm that there's an inverse correlation between muscle strength and metabolic syndrome. So more strength, if you're stronger, you're less likely to be pre-diabetic. It says in the health professions follow-up study, they monitored more than 32,000 subjects over 18 years. And those who trained with resistance training, right, for more than 150 minutes per week, showed a 34% reduction in their risk of type 2 diabetes. So resistance training clearly having a benefit, whether that's through muscle mass or quality of muscle, um, is a little bit harder to, to tease apart. It even says the protection offered by physical activity against type 2 diabetes increased up to 60% when the analysis included obese people that were performing resistance exercise. So 34 to 60% reduced risk of diabetes, right, which is poor carb handling in the extreme, because of resistance training. And further in this big review, it says resistance training can improve insulin action and glycemic control in people with type 2 diabetes. In a meta-analysis, Umpierre et al. reported a reduction of about a half a point, a little more than half a point, in hemoglobin A1c. So that's quite good after 12 weeks of resistance training. It says most individuals are able to better control their blood glucose levels uh, and their body weight by resistance training-induced increases in lean body mass and insulin sensitivity. So more muscle mass looks like better insulin sensitivity in this case when it's done with resistance training. It says in particular, resistance training prevents lean body mass loss in those uh, essentially aiming for weight loss while preserving what they can, right, and be in a calorie-restricted state. They even go on to say that diabetic medications were reduced 72% in people who did resistance training compared with controls. So clearly resistance training looks good in this uh, big review in endocrine 2018 um, by Cordella and colleagues. And just la lastly, as a sidebar, they also sort of point out here that there is a change in quality, if you will, with muscle fiber types going a bit from 2X fibers to 2A, slightly more oxidative fibers. And they also suggest it's got to be fairly intense, like 60 to 80% of one rep max. So very positive stuff coming out of this one. But let's look at another paper. This is a Korean paper from HEO, H-E-O and colleagues. Association between thigh muscle and insulin resistance, according to body mass index in middle-aged Korean adults. So this is middle-aged. They say many studies have reported a significant inverse association between muscle mass and insulin resistance. In other words, more muscle mass, less problems with carbs. Some studies have been conducted in the general population. One study found a significant association between low muscle mass and higher insulin resistance. So again, supportive of this having muscle may help not having muscle is probably going to harm and they also speculate a little bit about differences in sex and menopausal status whether a woman has uh, enough estrogen in her body or if she's you know beyond the life change if you will so these korean researchers performed a cross-sectional study with let's see over 1200 men and almost 1500 women so quite a few subjects here to come up with their conclusions. They say the current study found that lower thigh muscle was independently associated with higher insulin resistance. So in other words, don't have big quads and hamstrings and adductors. You're going to be probably worse at handling carbs. 
and again, we're talking about more gen pop people here, but they say that thigh muscle mass was a good thing uh, even after they adjusted for other risk factors. So there are several risk factors uh, in diabetes, of course. But these were people generally with higher body mass index, like a lot of lifters, right? Pretty heavy for your height. As a partial caveat here, they do suggest that the relationship in women is a little bit softer, a little bit weaker uh, than it was for men. But there was still a tendency uh, for thigh muscle to be associated um, with carb handling. Again, meaning not enough muscle mass, poorer carb handling. And finally, they do point out the quality issue that we were just talking about. It says mid-thigh composition, such as muscle density uh, and muscle fat infiltration, are issues here. So they're trying to look at muscle mass, but of course the quality issue comes up. Here's one from Larson and colleagues. The association of muscle mass, muscle area, and strength with the incidence of diabetes in older adults. Uh, So this is from the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. This is actually back to 2016. It says, skeletal muscle plays a key role in glucose regulation, but the association between muscle quantity and quality and the risk of getting type 2 diabetes has not been uh, fully explored. Sort of in opposition to that Korean paper where they saw uh, thigh muscle mass being helpful mostly to men, uh, also some to women after adjustments, but they say, For women, there was a significant interaction with body mass index for both abdominal and thigh muscle, such that greater muscle predicted lower risk of incident diabetes in normal weight women. So they're saying normal weight women. So heavier women and men, they really didn't see uh, a positive relationship like that. In fact, they say unadjusted data for all the participants, all genders, uh, suggested greater abdominal and thigh muscle areas were actually related to greater risk of diabetes. What the heck? But of course, they're quick to point out uh, that this is probably explained by having more body fat uh, along with that additional muscle. So we've got some contradictory evidence as far as who is benefiting, men or women, and it seems to depend on middle-aged versus old here. But what about young people? There is a study here from Haynes and colleagues, brand new 2020. This paper is especially interesting because they use lots of tech to look at body composition. They use DEXA and CAT scans and proton MR spectroscopy and things like that. So they're really trying to get at these, again, detrimental fat depots where the little areas of pockets of fat around the body or intramuscular triglycerides and all that kind of stuff. So... 132 adults, average age was about 34 years old, so pretty young, uh, certainly almost like at the age where a lifter might be peaking, although these weren't lifters, and they say men with the highest percent ideal, essentially limb muscle mass, had insulin sensitivity twice as good as the lowest third, the lowest, the least muscly, and that supported their hypothesis was that relatively more skeletal muscle mass would be associated with better insulin sensitivity, right? Carb handling, even independently of some of these fatty areas, fat storage areas throughout the body. So pretty cool stuff there. Strangely, in women, it wasn't significant after they adjusted for some of these uh, fat storage areas throughout the body. Uh, And they speculate that muscle mass is greater uh, in men. So maybe there's just that much more of a gas tank. Uh, In a sense, though, this may be suggesting that women really should be trying to beef up that muscle mass with resistance training. uh, Because again, remember, this is a gen pop study. And that brings me to my last point is if you're sore, if you have all this muscle mass, and if muscle mass is such a great gas tank, and it looks like it mostly is, studies disagree who benefits the most and that sort of thing. But What about if you're sore? Because all the way back to the 80s and 90s, we've seen work from, let me give you a list of researchers if you ever want to go look. Doyle, Sherman, Delaguila, Yaroshevsky, Hortobagi, even me, Lowry. um, In 2001, I believe, we presented some stuff at the Ohio Academy of Science meeting uh, that sore 
eccentrically trained muscle doing negatives is going to really mess with your ability to dispose of carbohydrates. Well, if you have so much more of you that is muscle tissue and you wreck all of it. In fact, we did multiple sets of like 85 and 90% negatives in the squat and bench. We made people wrecked all over and it did seem to harm their ability to dispose of glucose or maybe they needed more insulin secretion to try to compensate for it. So that's why I think a lot of lifters were so down on carbohydrates, right? The keto thing is so big and high carb diets because are, are not so big because if you're sore all the time, and let's face it, when you're especially bodybuilders, I would think powerlifters to a big extent, but you're purposely doing negatives and you're getting sore and you're trying to build mass. Uh, negatives are great for growth, for muscle mass, but according to all these researchers, if those muscles are really sore, they're just not going to allow insulin to do its thing and de deposit the glucose in there. Right now, it's, I should be fair and point out multiple uh, bouts of eccentric uh, exercise. It's probably going to self-correct a little bit. Uh, but that begs the question is how long do you take off before you sort of reset to square one? We're at we're uh, about of negatives and getting real sore and wrecked is going to be back to wrecking your carb metabolism. Uh, at least during steady training, though. Repeat bouts of eccentric stuff should make you less sore and should make you less insulin resistant like that. So that's why I think a lot of lifters are so down on carbs because in a, an average person, this could have a, a problematic effect. But in a bodybuilder who's almost all muscle mass, I mean, by comparison, I'm exaggerating, but they're going to be really especially wrecked because their huge gas tank for carbohydrates or all this muscle mass is now sore and not really able to do its job, at least, you know, from that novel bout that makes you real sore. So that's where we are with muscle mass and why bodybuilders and powerlifters might be weird compared to the average person. Uh, thanks for hanging in there during this little academic whirlwind. But, you know, if you want evidence, this is it. This is where it's at. Muscle mass is generally a really good thing, especially if it's built uh, with resistance training and that kind of stuff. So we're probably in the right here. So long as we keep in mind that maybe we're down on carbs sometimes because we're always sore, if that's the case. See you next time. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of 
sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.